Hello, everybody. We have a really exciting and strange episode of Spurbs Herbs today. This is episode 16. We're going to be talking about an herb that isn't a major Chinese medical herb. It's important, but it's not a major one. Uh, and it's called Bai To Wang or Pulsatilla Chinensis Radix, or just in the uh, common language, Pulsatilla. Uh, we called this when we were going through school. We had to learn, when, when I was going through school, we had to learn uh, the herbs. We had to be able to recognize the herbs because there was a practical exam in the state of California. We needed to know, uh, you know, they would give us just herbs. And this was a whole category of herbs, you know, a, a group of herbs that we called uh, the uh, uh backyard trash or, or garbage herbs because they were so difficult to tell apart from each other and and they just kind of got mingled in our minds so so you know this is an interesting herb in that it's an important herb we're going to learn about it it's going to be useful but also we have some controversy for the first time in this verbs herbs i'm excited about that because i am nothing but controversial i'm kidding of course but it should be fun episode and so let's step into it so we are, uh, if you are an acupuncturist, this podcast as well as others are approved for California Acupuncture Board continuing education units, both live and uh, online, depending on what you're looking for. Well, this one, of course, is if you're uh, recording this is online. Otherwise, uh, if you're with us, it's live. And NCCOM PDAs, that's the National Certification Commission of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, professional development activities at a very reasonable cost. Please check us out at www.integrativemedicinecouncil, that's C-O-U-N-C-I-L.org, integrativemedicinecouncil.org, and you can see lots of CEUs available for you. So, All right, so this is a very interesting herb. It's, it's part of a category. We're going to talk about the category in general, but uh, the herb this week treats toxins. So we're going to talk toxins, toxins, toxins right now. And toxins are a huge pet peeve for me. So uh, this is going to be controversial. And and I I want to talk about this. this is, I, I love the fact that we're getting into toxins here. Uh, I'm, I'm shocked that it took me so long as I was developing this to even think about toxins as, a, as our something different for today's episode. But here we go. But before we do anything else, I have a story for you. Around a decade ago, my mother and I went on a cruise, and they had acupuncture on the cruise. And I, I've been on, you know, quite a few cruises, uh, not lately, but uh, in the day. And uh, always curious about acupuncturists uh, and how it's implemented on a, on a cruise ship. So we went to an open house of their spa on the first day of the cruise. They showed us around the spa while pointing out all of their services. Um, if I'm, I'm not, I was able to talk with their staff acupuncturist, which was very nice. If I, if I remember correctly, she actually said it had a copy of my book in the, in the, in the, in the uh, acupuncture office, which I thought was very cool. And then we get to the end. And they were discussing some newfangled mud seaweed infrared treatment they have. It was, I can never figure this stuff out. And the therapist, I think it was a massage therapist or a spa coordinator or something, said, it helps treat and get rid of toxins. And so I politely raised my hand and asked, what is a toxin? Suddenly, 
had a sharp pain in my side. My completely violence adverse mother dramatically and without remorse jabbed me in my ribs to shut me up. So that question, by the way, never got answered, which I think is always interesting. Uh, because that's the heart of the matter. What the freaking frack are toxins? So I'm going to go on record and create some controversy right now. In this context, there is no such thing as toxins. I'm going to yell a little bit, so I'm sorry. I don't think, I think my equipment will prevent it from hurting your ears. They are simply a marketing ploy to get people to part with their hard-earned shekels. I have a, I have a, a reference for this, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the bibliography author, uh, Stephen Novella, and uh, he did not mention shekels at all, I want to say, in the, in the article, but he did call it a marketing scam, and it is. But I'm not saying toxins don't exist. They absolutely do exist, and so let's get into what we're talking about here. But not like this. Not, there is no freaking way an acai bumbleberry seaweed ocean rock special salt from a hidden waterfall in the shrine of the god of the moment wrap in a super duper infrared sauna turn tuned to the wavelength of the ancient Greek oracles while getting a cold brew coffee from the sacred mountains of Africa enema and playing cosmic tuning forks in the background is going to help get rid of them. It's not going to happen. And nothing you eat, drain, fast, cleanse, paste, soak, or wipe is going to help either. Not gonna. All right, so let's take a step back. Let's start with there are toxins. I already started, said that, but let's, let's start with that. From a biological medical point of view, a toxin is an exogenous or endogenous substance that causes harm to an organism. So exogenous means it comes from outside of the organism. Endogenous means it comes from inside the origin, inside the organism. We have, we are always creating toxins in our bodies and our bodies know how to deal with them. So, you know, great example. We talk a lot about antioxidants. Well, oxidants are things that are natural byproducts of a lot of the chemical reactions we do in the body and are necessary and need to happen. And so, uh, you know, and there's other types of antioxidants, of course, too. So those are endogenous substances that cause harm to us. These can be a poison from the outside, a poison from the inside. They're, we make our own poison sometimes, harmful chemical and a normal substance at toxic doses. There's, there's the old saying is everything's toxic given a specific dose. And I always like to bring up, I remember this old thing uh, back when the, the Nintendo Wii first came out. It was very popular if you weren't around. It was incredibly popular, very difficult to get at that point. And uh, it was a game system if you're not familiar with the Wii. The WII, and I remember there was a some shock chocks. I think up in in uh, northwestern, I think Oregon or Washington. I'm forever getting those two mixed up. And they had a radio contest of hold your Wii for a Wii, and the idea was you had to keep drinking water and not go to the bathroom. And if you went to the bathroom, you were out of the context. Well, someone, I think the winner actually drank so much water and didn't go to the bathroom. That's some willpower there. And they actually died from water poisoning. So it's not the substance, it's the dose that makes it toxic. And, and so that's it. Pretty much anything, you know, that is harmful to the body can be considered a toxin, you know, to some extent. 
here's the thing. The body can handle these things or you get really sick. The body has lots of mechanisms to get rid of toxins from not absorbing them in the first place. So sometimes our body doesn't absorb toxins because they know they're poisonous. Um, that's part of our, the reason why we, we vomit, you know, the idea is that we take something in that is harmful to us and our body's reaction is to vomit, to get whatever we have in out and to prevent us from getting any more in. So yeah, we're, we're pretty good from not absorbing them at all um, or at least minimally. To dealing with them through the liver. The liver is the main organ that will deal with a lot of these things. And so that's important. To eliminating them through urine or, and stool. So um, sometimes uh, I always like the, the idea that our bodies are donuts. And there's a big hole in the middle of them called our intestinal, our gastrointestinal tract. And so technically anything in that gastrointestinal, uh, gastrointestinal tract isn't being absorbed. It's just going through the hole. And so... There you go. It can be excreted in the stool that way and never be absorbed. So, so liver's job is to filter the blood and convert substances into easier to excrete substances or to less harmful substances. They metabolize. That's the, the technical term for it. The liver metabolizes substances, good substances, bad substances. It doesn't really matter. It's pretty indiscriminate and has a lot of mechanisms to do that. We talk about cytochrome P450 a lot on my, on my, uh, um, podcasts. And so that's one of the, the mechanisms. It's a, an enzyme that does stuff. And so easier to extract substances either in the urine or in the stool. So that's the liver's job is to get rid of a lot of this stuff. If a substance doesn't use these systems, it can't be eliminated from the body. You know, yes, there are other ways to excrete, like through uh, sweat and, and uh, lactation, uh, things along those lines. Yes, but generally not much is excreted in those in those other things by far the most common uh, path of excretion of something that's been ingested is going to be in the urine and then stool is going to be number two generally so um so uh, you know substances don't use these systems can't be eliminated from the body and for example some heavy metals are like this so um i don't know if you're familiar with like mad hatter's disease which was from uh people who were making hats felt hats back in the day and using mercury as as uh, part of the process and then they would absorb mercury they could not excrete it they could not deal with this quote-unquote toxin and and that actually is a, a good use of the word toxin i think that's an appropriate use of the word toxin and so they couldn't, uh, and they go slowly mad. That's where mad hatters came from because it does tend to concentrate in certain areas of the body and the brain being one of them. And there are other heavy metals that are like that too. And there are things that we can do to get rid of those heavy metals. None of them are something you can probably do at your massage therapist's office. So substance can overwhelm these systems and cannot be excreted in adequate quantities. So, for example, that idea of the water, the we for the we. Um, the, the body, well, wasn't being allowed to excrete it at a certain point. It couldn't deal with it anymore, and it died. Uh, and But here's the thing. If that's the case, if these systems are overwhelmed, if, there's a, if you're not able to excrete these things, you get sick, you know, very sick. It's not like, oh, I just feel a little off. Now, Look, I know there are people who have environmental uh, sensitivities and, 
you might be able to consider some of those chemicals. I think a lot of those environmental chemicals would definitely fall into this category of toxins. Um, so I'm, I'm not discounting any of those ideas when I'm talking about this. All I'm saying is those are not, you're not, if you have environmental, uh, you know, issues, environmental chemical issues, getting a seaweed wrap is not going to help you. And having someone promote that to you as a way to get rid of quote-unquote toxins, I think is toxic in and of itself. So that's the issue. So what there isn't is some ill-defined sickness-inducing toxin that our body hides away and needs special activities to get rid of. It, it just doesn't happen. Not, not without florid signs eventually. So here's the thing. A lot not all of the proposed regimens are actually helpful to health, in my opinion. I actually am not against a lot of these regimens that, that people who say they're for the toxins are, are uh, I, they're good. Let's get into them. You know, I'm a believer in fasting. It is traditional in many spiritual and religious traditions, and the research probably shows it is beneficial for our health. I've done fasting. I've done a lot of fasting in my life, and, and I... I've had benefits from it. Now, having said that, there are lots of people, like I was treating a an anorexic nervosa patient. She was sickly thin and she was at a party and someone who was studying Ayurvedic, obviously just superficially, Ayurvedic medicine said, oh, you need to fast in order to get rid of your toxins to this rail thin bone sticking out woman. I mean, it was ridiculous. That is not appropriate. And no, she should not have fasted to get rid of toxins. Again, I'm not saying anything against Ayurvedic. I know toxins are part of that scenario, but fasting is not for everyone. I'm a corpulent man. I'm a larger man. It is not a problem for me to fast. Would I recommend it to anyone who's too thin? Absolutely not. It's not for everybody. But here's the thing. Fasting has nothing to do with toxins. It's There are no toxins that fasting is going to rub. Now, my teacher who taught me to do fasting did say, hey, you know, um, he, he had some ideas, not him, but he kind of espoused some ideas of like the idea of stool getting stuck and fasting is a great way to clean out your system. Well, I agree that fasting is a good way to clean out your system. It does that. It empties everything out from there and there are things that might be helpful that you can do while fasting i've tried a lot of different fasts and i know which ones felt made me feel better and which ones made me feel worse all that but i don't think there's quote-unquote toxins that are being dealt with in any way shape or form during fasting so again fasting not bad for a lot of people not everyone but it doesn't mean anything about toxins eating a clean diet, drinking lots of fluids, having regular and beneficial excretions are very helpful for health. I wish I did more of that. So actually, I'm not too bad on a lot of it, but some of them I'm not. And I, that's great. Fantastic. That's really healthy. Go for it. Absolutely fantastic. But they have nothing to do about quote unquote toxins. It just doesn't, it has nothing to do with that. You should eat that way. If you don't eat that way, it doesn't mean you're creating toxins it means you're eating poorly and your health reflects that you can't say that's a toxin that's a choice 
cleansing diets and fasts not only do not do anything with any toxins, they can be very harmful. From a Chinese point of view, they are exactly the kind of treatments many of the best historical doctors railed against. Some of our top, top doctors, they said, these are the things you have to avoid. Uh, it, I'm like, what the hell? Why are Chinese practitioners recommending cleansing diets and fasts? Purgative herbs are in most of these things. Some of our harshest and potentially most harmful herbs are given willy-nilly in the, in the name of cleansing toxins. Unbelievable. Lots of extremely cold or hot herbs are in these, these pre, um, per, you know, these pre cleansing regimen. And we're giving these incredibly cold or hot herbs that can cause a lot of harm without any diagnosis. I mean, it's like, I've seen people just say, Oh, you need to be on a cleansing diet. Take this product. I really like this product without any diagnosis. What's a ridiculous and yet we do it as a profession. We do it as herbalists. We do it with people who don't have a freaking clue about herbs. Can you tell I'm a little heated about this? Greg, aren't most of the drain damp cold herbs too? Uh, not necessarily. You can drain damp. Um, I, they're, they're, I think a lot of them are neutral. Like fooling is neutral. Poria cocos is, is relatively neutral in quality. And, but I think you're right. They tend towards cooling, not cold. And there is, if I remember correctly, and I don't remember which one, there's one that's considered warming. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, they're on the cooling side, I would say, but they're not cold. We're, we're not talking cold herbs. I'm talking about like, I've looked at some of these these cleansing formulas and they have, um, um, uh, whatchamacallit, they have um, funiculi. Um, I'm trying to think of what the, the common name is for that. It's the small little seed you get a lot, like Indian restaurants, um, Fennel. 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 Thank you. That's the word yeah. I'm trying to do, um, which is considered hot in Chinese medicine. And you got to be judicious about using that. And yet I see them in all these formulas, a lot of these formulas. And, and so I have a problem with that, you know? So, all right. So enemas, enemas may be helpful for certain things, but generally Chinese medicine is not a major supporter of Chinese medicine. I, I, I want to qualify that. I mean, there's certainly, in fact, the herb we're going to talk about today actually says you can use it as an enema. We can use herbs as enema. We do use enemas, but not like as a standard for maintaining health. You know, the way my, my teacher, my teacher was my martial arts instructor, very well versed in a lot of Chinese medicine, but he came from the Taoist perspective, which is different sometimes than Chinese medicine. Chinese medicine is based on Taoism a lot, but it's not always the same. There's some critical differences between Taoism medicine and Chinese medicine. I'm not sure this is one of those or not, but he was dead set against enemas. And the reason why he did not like enemas is because it's going in the wrong direction. It's not with nature. Taoism's all about being in harmony with nature and enemas go against nature. Things are supposed to come out of the, of the anus, not into the anus. Uh, and so he was, he did not like that. So I don't think Chinese medicine, I think when warranted for a specific cause, I think they're probably fine in Chinese medicine, but to do them as a, as a health regimen, I, I, there's no, first of all, there's no scientific support to, to, uh, scientific evidence to support it. And I don't think it's, it's very traditional in Chinese medicine either. So and wraps and massages of any sort, no way are they dealing with with 
toxins. Yes, massage helps circulation. It's very helpful in other ways as well. I love my massages. I just had one this week. We've been dying. It was my birthday earlier this month. We wanted to do it on my birthday. It's been three weeks. I was dying for a massage. I felt so good. So I love my massages. There's nothing against massages. I'm just saying they don't deal with toxins. And it's it's just not it, it's unbelievable that people would say that that would deal with toxins. Certainly, I think it has a lot of health benefits, and I'm a big fan of them. Toxins aren't one of them. So that's not to say that toxins do not play a role in traditional healing regimen. Ayurveda talks about toxins, absolutely, and I'm sure other traditions do as well. I'm not, you know, I don't know about Native American or other Aboriginal traditions, but I'm sure um, there may be some concept like toxins in those traditions i'm not saying anything against that within a tradition that's fine i i often have an issue with people who don't know a tradition very well glom on a couple concepts from that tradition and then run with them especially for marketing purposes that i see a lot of in chinese medicine as well as ayurvedic and so that's wrong um and and i think you know that might be happening sometimes with this but Toxins are supposedly a, a component of Ayurvedic, so I'm not I'm not sure. And they can be very important in Chinese medicine as well. But these aren't the airy, nondescript, quote, toxins, unquote, that are treated by any of the things we have discussed here. But I do want to talk, let's talk a little bit more about Chinese toxins before we get into our herb today. So why is men and yay? In their practical dictionary of Chinese medicine, this is a huge tome that kind of, is defines a lot of the concepts in Chinese medicine, at least in English. It has several definitions for du or toxin. Du, D-U, with second tone mark, is uh, the Chinese word for toxin. So one, any substance that is harmful to the body through a wound or through the skin. Okay. They talk about things like um, lacquer poisoning in this context or uh, something along those lines. So uh, interesting. Two, any virulent evil chi. So that word virulent is really important because that is something that starts to denote an infection. And that is important here as we go through. So I think that's what that's referring to. Three, evil chi that causes painful reddening and swelling, superation or weeping discharge. So superation and weeping discharge, again, denote an infection of some sort. You do not have superation without an infection. You can have a weeping discharge, other things, but often it means infection. And for a label for certain conditions or uh, for certain conditions of external origin, such as cinnabar toxin. So like that makes sense that that's right in line with our biomedical sort of approach that you can take stuff in from the outside and those can be considered toxins. So really these can be broken down into environmental toxins, cinnabar, which if you're not familiar with is, is mercury. Is, is cinnabar is the is uh, mercury alloy, basically, and that's what we're worried about is the mercury in the cinnabar. Or infections. That's it. Environmental toxins are infections. That actually, infections aren't part of, we wouldn't say toxins in a biomedical point of view, but we certainly have lots of infections from a biomedical point of view. It makes lots of sense in that way. If you want to call them toxins, I don't have a problem with it. So this makes sense. This is well-defined. So there you have it. When we have herbs that quote-unquote treat toxins, generally we mean infections. There are other kinds of herbs that can help with the other kinds of toxins, but when we say an herb treats a toxin, it usually is combined with clear heat, so that redness we were talking about under that definition is heat, and it, it 
treats toxins, clear heat and treats toxins. Guess what? That's the, the category of the herb we're going to be talking about right now. So it does, when we say treat oxen, it generally means we treat infections. And we're going to see that in this herb. Not always, but herbs that treat toxins pretty much mean this. That's what I was saying earlier. That makes sense. Almost all of these herbs have antimicrobial properties when looked at from a biomedical approach. And when I say all of these herbs, I'm talking about these toxin-treating herbs from Chinese medicine. Now, that seems pretty straightforward, not nondescript or ill-defined, and it doesn't need newfangled weird treatments to treat them. All right, I'm going to breathe because that was a lot. <laughs> I came on heavy there. First time I've done that. Um, I'm... I'm my classes, I've, I think I was a little famous for, for every once in a while having one of these, I guess, rants. I call them soapbox moments. Um, I am going to pause right here, though. We, we do have a couple live people. I just wanted to give them a chance to agree, argue, have questions about anything I just said. Because I don't mind controversy. I don't mind people disagreeing with me, uh, especially when I come on so heavy-handed. Someone needs to, to step up and, and say, well, maybe you shouldn't be so heavy-handed. So I want to give an opportunity to our two two listeners right now, if, if you have anything you'd like to say, you're welcome to type them in the chat box or, or unmute yourself, whatever you'd like to do. All right. Apparently, I blew them away with my my <laughs> my uh, <laughs> my thing. All right. Well, I got a chuckle at least. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Let's talk about Bytolwen, our herb of the day. So part of the reason, you know, we took a little bit of time uh, talking about toxins and what they are from a Chinese point of view is because this herb is actually a pretty straightforward herb. There's not a ton to it. So I'm not rushing for time when I'm trying to describe the herb. I actually needed a, a little bit of extra time. So this is perfect. We're doing really well. So family, uh, it comes from the Ranunculaceae, the Ranunculaceae, Ranunculaceae just need to pronounce it a few times before I get it. That's the family. Uh, and uh, the medicinal part is the root in this case. That's what radix is. So uh, it's the root. The English translation of Baitouang is kind of funny. It means hoary-headed geezer. Apparently, when you look at this herb, it looks like an old man. So that's what it is. Hoary-headed geezer. Uh, is the English translation of it. In fact, there's other Chinese terms for this, and they all have some some theme of old man attached to it. So, other names for this herb include Chinese anemone root, anemone, just anemone, and Japanese. And I don't know how to pronounce this at all, so I'm going to give it my best bet. Is hakuto, and in Korean again, same thing. Um, Baek bak, duong, and then another name for it in in uh, Chinese is bai to gong, gong meaning uh, root. So bai to wang is sort of the official name for it. Bai to gong is uh, a little bit more direct. There are a ton of Chinese names based on location and older names. This is an older herb. We're going to find out that this was in the Shenong Ben Sao Jing, which is kind of the first existent uh, book on, on single herbs. So this is about as old as an herb gets. And of course, it was used long before it was written down in that case. So it's, a, it's an older herb. Now, here's the interesting. Now, as you guys know, if you listen to here, 
I usually have a few main sources for these herbs, and I always love to compare the sources and see where they differ. All of them agree on the dosing on this. It's 6 to 15 grams of dosing per day. So uh, that's a fairly standard dose. Uh, the 6 to 9 is like kind of the way it is. And, and you might, if you're hearing this for the first time, why six to nine grams? That's sort of a weird, and, and, and that's sort of the standard dose for herbs. And then we look for deviations from there sort of thing. And uh, it actually comes down to some ancient uh, Chinese uh, approaches of measurement. And, and those in modern times are, are uh, broken down in three grams. So that's why you usually have a multiple of three grams. And so that's where we have the six to nine. Uh, and then uh, up to 15 grams means, you know, it's a little bit, uh, you can have it at a little bit higher doses than the average herb. All right, so let's talk about the Ranunculaceae family. There are 43 genera to this. So remember, we have a family, we have uh, genera, and then we have, uh, uh, or genus is the singular for genera, and a species. So when we say this one is pulsatilla chinensis, pulsatilla is the genera, and chinensis is the species. So there are 43 genera and 2,000 known species in this family of buttercups or crow's foots, flowering plants. So these are flowering plants of the family of buttercups or crowfoots. It translates, the, the ranunculaceae translates from the Latin as little frog. I think that's interesting. And usually if it's called something like that, it's because it resembles it at some level. So interesting. So uh, see, I'm starting to get decent with this with this family name. Ranunculaceae, I almost jinxed myself, are mostly herbaceous annuals or perennials. But there are some woody climbers and shrubs. The flowers are bisexual, so you don't need different plants. Several genera in this family are important in Chinese herbology and other traditions, including aconite. If you're not familiar with aconite, that is uh, a quite famous Chinese herb. I'm sure at some point we're going to hit that with superb herbs. Uh, Simisifuga, uh, which is uh, shengma, and clematis. We actually have a couple clemata, clematis, I think, in, in Chinese herbology. So uh, interesting. This whole family has some, some very interesting herbal sort of approaches to it. So the category, even though they slightly word these differently, they all agree on the category for this. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I like listing the different ones because the different translations I think kind of pull out a little bit of tease out a little bit of the of the the subtleties of the of the Chinese word. So Bensky and his team says it is an herb that clears heat and resolves toxicity. Uh, Chen and Chen state that it is a heat clearing and toxin eliminating herb. And Brandon Wiseman clarifies it, classifies it as a heat clearing toxin resolving medicinal. So, you know, one says resolves toxicity, another says toxin eliminating, another one says toxin resolving. So all mean the same thing, but slightly different uh, translations of it. Uh, it is bitter and cold. So it is a cold herb, which makes sense. If it's in the treat, clears heat and resolves toxicity, we would expect it to be cold. It is cold. It is bitter. Uh, and it enters the large intestine and stomach, according to both Bensky's team and Brandon Wiseman, though Chen and Chen does not include stomach in their rendition of their book. So uh, enters the large intestine for sure and probably enters the stomach. The best quality has thick and long roots with a solid texture. 
And as I said, all the sources actually agree that this, the original source for the herb is the Shendong Ben Sao Jing or the Divine Husbandsman's classic of the Materia Medica in the second century CE. And as I said, this is the oldest existing book, uh, regular, you know, kind of complete Materia Medica of Chinese herbs at that period of time. So it's, it's a really important foundational text. We'll get some quotes from it and you'll see that it's probably what it says in there is probably not super useful for modern herbology, but it's there and it's listed and it's interesting. All right, so let's talk about Chinese medical actions. It's actually pretty straightforward. Uh, the Chinese medical actions don't really differ that much between all the source texts. Uh, it's how you apply it, slight differences, but not much. So according to Bensky et al, uh, Bai Wang only has one action. It clears heat and resolves fire toxicity. That is considered one action, uh, especially in dysenteric disorders with damp heat in the stomach or intestines. So dysentery is... is uh, usually defined as bloody diarrhea and uh, is almost always infectious in, organ in origin. I can't think of any dysentery that would not be infectious off the top of my head. I don't think that exists. I, and it says, not as an action, but sort of kind of on the side, it says it also cools the blood. And again, that makes sense. It's a clear heat sort of thing. So it's got a clear heat from something. It can clear her from the body. In this case, it's the intestines and the blood. So that's kind of where this is, is going with it. Chen Chen has all three of these actions and uh, functions in one action. So they're, again, they only have one action for the herb, and that action is clear heat, eliminates toxins, and cools the blood. Boom. Again, no disagreement. Uh, just they're staying slightly differently. But they also say in addition to dysentery, they also recommend it for diarrhea, hemorrhoids, especially from toxic damp heat. So that's that toxic um, there. Does that mean infectious in this case? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes damp and heat alone can be considered a toxin, but eh. uh, scrofula. Scrofula is in large lymph nodes, especially associated with tuberculosis, but not necessarily associated with tuberculosis. And malaria. So malaria is, is definitely something that pops up as well. Uh, that is often considered, considered a hot infection or heated infection. Brandon Wiseman concurs with these actions and adds that it can be useful for genital itching with white vaginal discharge. Now that makes a, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Generally, when we see we see any discharge that is white, we generally consider that to be uh, cool to neutral, you know, neutral to cooling um, rather than hot. So it's a little bit interesting. The other books don't mention this, so eh. uh, and they don't mention scrofula either. So the only book that really actually mentions scrofula is Chen Chen's. So the Divine Farmer's Materia Medica says the following about this inferior class herb. At some point, we're going to talk about the uh, Shendang Ben Sao Jing's. They classify herbs as inferior, middle, and, and superior herbs. Inferior herbs should, uh, just in a quick nutshell, should only be used for short periods of time and to treat disease. Uh, they should not be used long term or to actually increase health in any way, shape, or form. So the old name is Baito Gong. G-O-N-G, -G. well, before I said Baitogong is a, is a thing that's G-E-N-G, -G. this is G-O-N-G, also called Ye Zhang Ren, or Secluded Old Man, and Huang Shurja, Envoy of the Nomad King, so these are all different 
names, and they actually mention these names specifically in the Shenong Bounsen Jing of the Defined Farmers of Materia Medica. It is bitter and warm. It treats warm malaria, mania, cold, and heat. So interesting. It says it's bitter and warm. All the other books, modern books, say it's bitter and cold. So it's interesting that in the day, this was considered warm. Now, just for a second, let's think about that for a second. I mean, we're talking almost 2,000 years of, of different growing patterns and stuff like that. And we do see this in some herbs that over millennia, they have changed a bit, whether that's an evolutionary process, whether that is uh, uh, as we've used the herbs more, we understand them better. So it's an evolutionary process of our understanding of the herbs. Uh, I don't know, but we do see this in some cases. This is a pretty dramatic one. It went from warm to cold, which is almost opposite so I, I don't know exactly where that came from but we definitely it, it's interesting though as you look at it, it treats warm malaria so it says it's cooling it treats cold and heat so that's interesting you know usually if it's it doesn't it treats concretions and conglomerations accumulations and gatherings this all means stagnations and lumps and and things along those lines and doesn't necessarily disagree with what we've been talking about but doesn't exactly agree with it either and goiter chi so goiter is an enlarged thyroid uh so nothing we've talked about so far mentions anything about goiters or the thyroid so it expels blood stasis again that that implies a moving quality that has not been mentioned up to this point relieves pain so possibly again that implies a moving quality and heals incised wounds now that makes sense if the you know it would help heal the incised wound prevent infections things along those lines so that makes sense so these Chinese medical actions from the divine farmers materia medica are interesting not necessarily modern day usages let's put it that way so um one of the things about bensky and his team is they have usually quite thorough commentaries, even on relatively minor herbs. And so they're always interesting to take a look at and see what they do. And, and in this case, they discuss some interesting aspects of this herb. Essentials of the Materia Medica, which is a book they reference, says of this herb, bitterness firms the kidneys, coldness cools the blood, and it enters the blood level of the yang brightness channel. So that's very kind of technical Chinese medicine right there. Uh, so I'm not going to get into all of that in, in this sort of, you know, r relatively deep, but not too deep view of this herb. Uh, but it, it's interesting. So it treats heat toxin, dysenteric disorder with bleeding. So again, dysentery usually implies bleeding and that makes perfect sense. Likewise, in Seeking Accuracy in the Materia Medica, another book reference here, Huang Gong Xiao explains the reference to toothache, joint pain, nosebleed, and abdominal masses. All of these are due to clumped pathogen in the Yang Brightness Channel. So the Yang Brightness Channel, I didn't mention it before, um, implies the stomach channel. That's the Yang Brightness Channel. Um, and so, uh, again, we understand why stomach might be involved in this. Uh, taking this herb resolves heat and clears toxicity, after which the kidneys are not disturbed by dryness and the teeth are firm. So the teeth are out, outcroppings, outgrowths of the kidneys. So they're connected. If the kidneys are in good health, usually the teeth are. The stomach is not affected by the pathogen. Pathogen, so the gums are quiet. Again, the stomach rules the gums. So that's part of the Chinese viewpoint. 
Toxicity does not ascend and invade, so nosebleeds stop. Heat does not clump internally, so bulging disorders and abdominal masses are both eliminated. All of this is the power of clearing and resolving heat toxin. So there you go, with an exclamation point. That's a pretty interesting quote. All right, so preparations. In addition to decoctions, this herb can be made into pills, vaginal washes, and enemas. I mentioned this herb could be used as an enema. We're going to see, though, that one of the cautions is be careful using them as vaginal washes and enemas. So we'll talk about that in just a minute. Other parts of the herb do have medicinal uses. Remember, we're talking about the root here. But Bai To Weng Jing, or the stem, the pulsatilla collis, collis meaning stem, are the main stalk of the of the plant. And Bai To Weng Ye, or pulsatilla folium, the flower of the, of the herb. So we're talking about the stem and the flower of the same herb instead of the root. Both have anti-rheumatic and cardiotonic effects and are slightly toxic. So anti-rheumatic... Uh, means that it helps joints and pains. Uh, so that makes sense. And then cardiotonic means it helps the heart, uh, which is an interesting uh, effect, and are slightly toxic, slightly toxic in those things. And we're going to see why they might be slightly toxic in just a minute. And then, so those two two different parts of the plant have the same function and are useful. Uh, Baito Wong, uh, W-E-N-G, is... Um, the, the radix again, uh, which is the root that we've been talking about, and they're actually saying it is antibiotic. And the idea is do not mix these up. You know, they do not have the same functions. You cannot throw all of them into the pot and expect to get a similar functionality out of the herb. All right, so those are different parts. Preparations. Combinations. Bensky again, uh, usually lists quite a few, uh, and his team uh, have a lot of combinations. And he actually discussed some common and important combinations for this herb. So for for being a relatively straightforward herb without a lot of uses, there's quite a few of important combinations with this herb. So with Huang Bai, uh, Felidendri uh, uh, Cortex, Huang Lian, Coptis, Rhizoma, and Chin P, Fraxini Cortex, for dysenteric disorders due to damp heat or epidemic toxins. So epidemic toxins or epidemic chi is exactly what you'd expect. You know, over we, we just experienced an epidemic toxin, basically, uh, with COVID. Uh, as in pulsatilla decoction. So that combination of Wangabai, Wangliang, and Chin P are in pulsatilla decoction by To Wang. Uh, tongue. Uh, so yeah, this, this actually has its uh, whole formula that's named after it uh, for dysentery. So that's, that's one of the reasons why this is really imp an important herb for, for things. The reason why it may not be so important is, you know, in modern uh, Chinese medicine, at least in the United States, is we don't see a lot of dysentery in the United States. And if we do, um, usually it's from the doctor to, uh, diagnosing it and they're on some heavy duty antibiotics or whatever they need to be in order to get rid of it. So we don't, as acupuncturists, see dysentery much in, in, uh, in the United States. Uh, but in ancient China, it was huge. Uh, probably, uh, I, you know, if you look at the 1900 and our lifespan in the United States and what was killing us, I think it was six or seven of the top 10 causes of death were infection. By 2000, when they looked at it, we had almost doubled our, our lifespan and, and 
only, I think, two or three of the top 10 causes of death were actually infectious in origin. So you can imagine in ancient times, dysentery killed a lot, a lot of people and would definitely, I would think, um, rank right up there as one of the, the leading causes of death in ancient China. So traditionally, this is incredibly important for, for uh, China and, and, and history of China. So it can also be used, we're talking about combinations, remember, we'll get back to that, with Ma Chirxian or Portulaca Herba. That's another one of those, those uh, um, you know, backyard garbage herbs that I was telling you about. Never tell that apart from any of the other ones. But used with that for dysenteric disorders due to heat toxin. Again, that's the same category, so it makes sense that they would work together and work in synergy. It can be used with Chai Hu, um, Bupleri Radix, uh, Huang Qin, Scutellaria Radix, and Bing Long, Ariake uh, semen, or um, that's actually betel nut, for warm malarial disorders. It can be used with Kushen, Sephora Flavicentis Radix, as an external wash for itchy vaginal discharge. So a lot of these herbs that we're talking about actually kind of come into... Uh, these combinations use herbs from the clear, damp, heat category, which is interesting. You know, all the Huangs, we had Wang Lian, Wang Qin, and, and um, Wang Bai. Those are all in that category. So is Kushen is in that category. So it makes sense. Uh, and often, dampness technically doesn't go, it isn't, it, you know, can be kind of considered a toxin. Often toxins are there with some form of dampness and or phlegm. So it makes sense that these are all in combination with each other. Chen Chen adds, combining it with DU or Sanguisorba radix, charred Huai Hua, Sephora floss, and charred Huang Qin, there's that Scutellaria radix again, for bleeding hemorrhoids. So remember, charring when we char an herb usually will stop bleeding. So the charring is kind of an important concept here if we're trying to stop bleeding hemorrhoids. So that's an interesting combination as well. By to uh, so that's it for combinations. Any questions on anything we've covered so far? Again, if you're with me, you can put it in the in the uh, chat box or unmute yourself. Uh, and if you're not with me, feel free to send me an email. I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, so let's move on to what's in this herb, pulsatilla. What are some major contents? So Baito Wong has several saponins. Uh, we're going to talk about what saponins are in just a second, but they're very common. In fact, almost only seen in, in plant substances. We're going to actually see that in just a second too. So several saponins, including uh, pulchinenicide A, which is the same thing as anenomicide A3, pulchinenicide A3, which is apparently not an anemonicide A3, pulchinenicide B, pulchinenicide B4, pulchinenicide C, which is the same thing as anemonicide B4, uh, pulchinenicide D, and two betulinic betulinic acid, three zero alpha L arabinopyranicide. Okay, so that's a big ass chemical name right there. Um, we're going to see betulinic acid is actually important, but it's not in and of itself a saponin. It's only when it's connected with the, this arabinopyrinicide um, that it becomes a saponin. And we're going to talk about what a saponin is in just a second. So uh, anenomicide B4 uh, has been shown, which is the same thing as pulchinicide C, 
has been shown to help ulcerative colitis in rats. So I, I'm not a huge fan of reporting animal studies uh, because I don't think they often correlate with how it would work in, in humans, but uh, I ran across this and I thought it was interesting, so I thought I'd, I'd mention it. All right, so let's talk about saponins. Saponins all derive from a 30-carbon precursor, 2,3-oxidosqualene, uh, and that is, the, the real thing is 30-carbon uh, is what we're looking at here, and usually that comes in rings. There, it, it can either be four or five rings uh, in the, in the, in, uh, as, a, as a chemical. Sapo here means soap, and therefore these create stable soap-like foams due to their amphoteric nature. So amphoteric means it has parts that are hydrophilic or like water and parts that are lipophilic or like fat. And so um, soap, the way soap works is uh, one side is usually uh, good for water and another, the opposite side is good for fats. And so it's very good for emulsifying fats and other things so that it can actually be washed away um, and they form something called micelles we're not going to get into all that sort of stuff uh, but amphoteric means it has both natures hydrophilic and hydrophobic or lipophilic and lipophobic these are all sort of synonyms or opposite synonyms you know they're in the ballpark Saponins come in two types. They can be uh, steroidal, just like our, our, a lot of our steroidal hor hormones like testosterone or estrogen. So it can be steroidal or it can be triterpenoid and refers to their structure. Uh, these structures are further broken down into 11 major classes of soponins, which saponins, excuse me, which we're not going to get into. Just letting you know, these are some of the background stuff. Almost all known saponins are from plants. Those starfish and sea cucumbers have several, which is interesting. You know, sea cucumbers are kind of known for being slimy, and it, uh, I suspect that's from uh, some of these uh, saponins that they do. So most animals do not have these. Uh, in, in fact, none of them do that we know of, except for starfish and sea cucumbers. In nature, they are thought to be part of a plant's defense mechanism and may be antimicrobial fun fungicidal. So antimicrobial means it's against microbes, like uh, uh, usually bacteria, but also potentially, you know, um, viruses and amoebas and things like that. Fungicidal means that it's against fungi or fung fungus. Uh, uh, allelopathic, uh, that means uh, allelo refers to our genes. Uh, a gene is an allele. And allelopathic means that it's, a, it's harmful to the genetics. Uh, insecticidal, against insect, uh, insects. And antiparasitic, so against various forms of parasitic, parasites. So really interesting, and if you think about those sort of things, and if we could translate some of those into uh, uh, the same similar circumstances in humans, that would be really useful. Uh, so that's where sort of saponins kind of come from why they're important and they are very common in traditional medicines from plants so we're basically saying with these traditional medicines that they have positive qualities and probably a lot of those are around these sort of functions of saponins the uh, bytoin also has organic acids as major constituents these include, include betulinic, betulinic 
acid. I mentioned that was going to be here, but it's not a saponin. It's only a saponin when it's combined with that other substance. Uh, three, oxobetalinic acid. 23, hydroxybetalinic acid and pulsatilic acid. So uh, often you'll see this sort of thing on, a, on an herb. Uh, they'll take the Latin name of the herb and give it to a constituent. So this is pulsatilla chinensis is the, is the herb in here. It includes pulsatilic acid. Basically, that means they either discovered it here first or it's only uh, found in pulsatilla, uh, you know, plants. Betulinic, begulinic acid is an interesting triterpene substance in that it has some strong anti-HIV. So um, triterpene, again, remember, uh, can be, uh, it's just a description of the, of the actual substance. Um, it can have some strong anti-HIV anti-inflammatory, anti-malarial, anti-angi... So let's go over these. Anti-HIV, so that's anti-human immunovirus, so it could be helpful in dealing with that. Anti-inflammatory, so it helps inflammation. Anti-malarial is against malaria. Anti-angiogenic, so what that is, it's against the formation of blood vessels. And you might go, well, hang on, aren't blood vessel formation good? No, you know, when we're when we're young and we're growing, yes, it's very good that we're forming blood uh, blood vessels. But when we're adults, we don't generally want to form blood vessels. And if we're doing that on a large scale, it usually indicates cancer uh, because cancer needs a lot of blood flow. So if we're doing a lot of blood vessel production, we probably have a cancer. So being anti-angiogenic is good. It prevents the formation of blood vessels and therefore is basically anti-cancer in that case. It can be a it can also be immunomodulatory, so it helps our immune system. Antifibrotic, so it prevents fibrosis and, and scar formation. And hepatoprotective, so it helps our it helps protect our liver, at least in vitro, which means in glass and in animals. So that's low-level evidence. What we're looking for is in vivo in humans. Uh, that means in human life. Um, and so, uh, you know, it has some very interesting effects. And if they were... Valid in humans, super useful, but we're not quite there making that connection. Uh, it is currently undergoing clinical trials for use as an ointment for treating dysplastic nevi. So a nevi, a nevis, uh, nevi is plural for nevis, a nevis is a mole. Uh, and dysplastic means that it is um, sort of precancerous. Uh, and and uh, it means that the cells are a little bit more fluid than they should be. And they're not as standardized as they should be and so this is actually um being looked at as a pre-melanoma sort of cream so that's very interesting it kind of ties together some of this stuff we've been talking about here other constituents in call uh, include anenomanin proto-anenomanin akinolin docosterol Arabinose and ranunculin. So again, remember this is family ranunculin. So ranunculin is is from that. So you know we've seen this word anenamin or anenomy or anenominic acid. We've seen that several times as we've talked about the contents. And I should point out that this is pulsatilla chinensis, but some people actually say this is uh, anenomy chinensis. So in other words, the instead of pulsatilla, it's anenomy. So that's why we see that word popping up quite a bit and, and is almost the same thing as saying pulsatillin, uh, pulsatillinin or something along those lines. So, all right. So let's talk about the science about this a little bit. Chen Chen uh, says uh, Botang Wang is anti-amoebic, so it's against amoeba. 
infections, antibiotic against bacterial infections, and has cardiotonic sedative. So cardiotonic we mentioned is good for the heart. Sedative uh, calms you down and analgesic effects so it helps with pain. So those are interesting effects. They continue to list some Chinese studies showing positive effects in treating amoebic dysentery, scrofula. That's probably why they said scrofula. Uh, uterine bleeding uh, along with DU. Uh, toothache, we mentioned toothache earlier in the commentary, and dermatitis, which means inflammation of the skin. However, all of these things were small Chinese clinical studies. So at least they were clinical, but they were small. So, yeah. And the real thing is when you, it was, they were older Chinese studies. And, and I got to say, you know, when China was doing a lot of these studies, up until maybe the, the 2000s, and, and especially once they got into the 2010s, they were, they were doing pretty good science. But before that, these clinical studies were, were really not well-defined or well-constructed. And they, like the results would be, you know, they'd look at um, 60 people and, and 45 of them would, would be um, way better. And then five would be better. And then um, three would be exactly the same. And one would be worse. And that's how they defined it. And that isn't scientifically useful, um, especially when they don't really define what makes them into each of the categories. When you read these these papers, they don't. So I'm not huge on this. There's some indication, at least they're clinical, they're in humans, but still rather than D level, which would be the lowest level of evidence, I put the C level because it's humans. So some evidence, but it needs a lot more evidence to support these claims. Uh, Kumar states several pharmacological activities from various constituents of Baitouang, including anti-cancer, hypoglycemic, so it lowers blood sugars, uh, could be useful for diabetics, anti-inflammatory effects, and prevention of hepatitis B infection. That could be interesting. These, again, were low level of evidence, and most of these effects refer to animal studies. So Kumar's was, I believe, a systematic review looking at Baitouang's effects. So looked at a lot of different studies, which I like. Those are good studies generally. But again, these effects were not in humans necessarily. So again, they point in a direction, but they don't prove anything. It appears that several constituents of Baitouang may induce peak glycoprotein, according to Leo Liu and his, his team. Uh, beyond that, there does not appear to be any significant drug-herb interactions or cytochrome P450 interactions based on a literature search. Now, uh, one of the things about this study from Liu, Leo um, is that it's new. It's 2020, which is nice, but it wasn't a clinical study. It was an in vitro study. So um, I didn't actually list any of the specific... Uh, oh, it's peak glycoprotein. Yeah, peak glycoprotein is important. There was nothing else. I, there was one that talked about cytochrome P450, and I, I, it just wasn't up to snuff. So I, I didn't include that. But peak glycoprotein is, is interesting. It induces peak glycoprotein, and that can certainly affect drug-urban interactions, but not by itself, probably not strongly. So some concerns about this herb. So according to Bensky, pulsatile radix, Baitouang probably has more adulterants than any other herb. In other words, the herb you're buying is probably not really Baitouang. That's basically what that means. Uh, Brandon Wiseman agrees, saying most of what is sold as Baitouang is not actually derived from the plant listed in the Chinese pharmacopoeia. Um, when you look in these books, they have literally a list of like 10 herbs uh, that are different, different species that are sold as Baitouang. So we need to be careful about getting the right thing.
Bensky also states that there are constituents on the fresh plant that are skin and mucous membrane irritants and that only the dried plant should should be used. And so that that's an uh, important thing. And that's why when we're talking about those vaginal washes and that enema, you want to make sure you're not fresh. And you want to make sure it's the right plant too because some of the, the adulterants are, can be a little bit on the harmful side. Bensky continues with some traditional contraindications. Baitoeng is bitter and cold and is contraindicated for any vaginal discharge due to deficiency of the stomach or diarrhea due to cold from deficiency. Because the cold and bitterness drain and direct downward, it should not be used for dysenteric disorders that exhibit pale, watery blood. So really with heat, we want a bright red blood. If it's pale and watery, it means it's from deficiency and it's, it's, it may, it's more from cold than it is from heat. And so therefore, this is not a good herb for that. It is a cold herb. We don't want to be using it in cold conditions. Chen Chen says it has very low toxicity in general. They state it is contraindicated in cases of dysentery or diarrhea due to cold and vacuity. So exactly what I just mentioned. Brandon Wiseman agrees with this contraindication and adds it should be used with caution in enemas and vaginal washes due to the possibility of irritation. So again, there's something on the fresh herb that can be ir irritating in that. So you definitely want it well dried. And I would probably just uh, put a little emphasis on it brush it off a little bit, make it a little bit, wipe it off, make sure there's nothing on that. It, it does seem to be surface rather than anything else that has the irritant. And that's it. We made it through exactly on time, exactly one hour. I appreciate you guys hanging in there uh, for, for this interesting uh, episode. Again, I got a little bit on my high horse. Not, not the for the first time on these purposes. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time, uh, but makes things a little bit spicy. So thank you. And if you can think about it, you know these when I do these as as a uh, as a, uh, a podcast, I am not making any money off this. So if you want to help us out when you do buy from Amazon, please go to spurbserbs.com and use the banner ad on our homepage. We'll get a few pennies from whatever you do. Helps us. And would appreciate it. You can, as I mentioned, always get in touch with me at Dr. Greg at spurbsherbs.com. That's S P E R B S H E R B S.com or our website, www.spurbsherbs.com. Thank you. Spurbs Herbs. The proceeding was presented by Dr. Greg Sperber. We would like to thank Janelle for all her support and everybody else who contributed to this program. Janelle, Timothy, Dobbins, Rogers, Campbell. 